0: Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 8 as we continue our study in this great letter, this great sermon uh, that the writer is sending to a group of Hebrew believers, Jewish believers who are struggling with the whole concept of not being able to see the one who is making their sacrifice, who is struggling with the whole concept of the fact that in the Old Covenant they saw the priest and the high priest, and they offered those sacrifices on their behalf, and they were able to observe that, and and go their way, now they're talking about, they are believing in a great high priest, whom they cannot see, whom they understand, offered this sacrifice on the cross, and they they have believed that, they have understood that to a certain extent, but there seems to be a sense of, I want to know more about, I want to see more, I want to have more of a sight of what is going on and not this this, uh, invisibility of what is taking place. And that's really a problem that many of us face every day, isn't it? I mean, we are worshiping a God whom we have not seen. We are believing in a Christ whom we have read about, heard about, and who has touched our lives by his Holy Spirit, but whom we have never seen. And so we are having faith. We are putting trust. We are believing in the one who, whom we cannot visually observe with our eyesight. Well, we're having the same problems sometimes, some of the same doubts, some of the same struggles, some of the same frustrations that these Hebrews did, and that's why it's important that we study this letter, that we understand this letter, because their thoughts, their doubts, their struggles are in many ways not a lot different from our own today, although we may be Gentiles and not Jews like they were, Many of the struggles, many of the, many of the doubts are the same. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 8. We covered verse 6 last week, but it's kind of a, a tie-in or a transitionary verse to this discussion of the new covenant, so I want to start there. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. And of course, that he is Jesus Christ by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. But finding fault with them, he says, and now he begins quoting that passage from Jeremiah that Brother Rick read just a little bit ago. Finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, <clears throat> not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, nor did they, did I care, no, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them upon their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. This is the word of the Lord. You know, as you look at that and that lengthy passage from Jeremiah that the writer depends upon to make his case for this new covenant, there are many questions that you might want to ask. First of all, even the writer of the Hebrews talks about making this covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. He talks about the the Jewish nation in the context of that, and the writer does not even put any commentary in there to say, now this is what I mean. He merely quotes it. He merely quotes the prophet Jeremiah, but he talks about this better covenant. He talks about this new covenant. He talks about this covenant that is seeing the old covenant pass away, the first covenant become obsolete, the first covenant become of no import, and this new covenant that has been established. Every time we meet for the Lord's Supper, and if I'd have been smart and on the ball, we would have had it this morning along with this sermon because it would have been a great, illustrative thing. As a matter of fact, if you're here with us on a regular basis and observe the Lord's Supper with us, you know that many times I read this passage as we come to that table because the Lord's table is really a picture of what this is. If you remember the Gospels, just before his betrayal and just before his crucifixion and and resurrection, our Lord gathered the 12 together with him in an upper room. And he began to talk about what was about to happen. Now, he'd been telling them that for a long time. Over and over again, he had said, I must go to Jerusalem, I must suffer, and I must die. And they had wanted no part of that. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to think about it. But on that night, he gathered them around and he took the bread and he took the wine and he said, listen, you need to understand this. This bread is my body, which in just a very short few hours is going to be hung on a cross and is going to die for you and in your place. This bread is my body, which is given for you. And when he took the cup, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is the blood of the new covenant which seals the relationship between God and you. This this wine that we're about to drink does not literally turn to blood when you drink it, but this wine that you're about to drink is representative of and is symbolic of and is pointing to the blood that will be shared on the cross in just a few hours. And that blood is the blood that seals your redemption and establishes the new covenant and makes a way for you to be able to be in relationship with God. So so Jesus set it up perfectly in the upper room. Jesus set it up perfectly when when he observed that last supper that we now call the Lord's Supper with those disciples. And it's a very important time in the ministry of Christ on this earth as he prepared them just before he left. And he gave them hint, he gave them a a foreshadowing. He gave them uh, some understanding that a new covenant was about to be initiated and was about to be inaugurated that they really didn't understand at all up to that point. They were still struggling from it. But it's a new covenant that is made. Now, a lot of people struggle with the fact that, uh, that Israel and Judah are used in this passage, and yet we talk about the new covenant being a covenant for the church that the new covenant is, is established in and enjoyed by and, and experienced by the church today, not the literal, physical nation of Israel. And many struggle with that. Some come up with all sorts of gymnastics, get around it. They say, well, the new covenant really isn't inaugurated yet. It will be inaugurated when the Lord returns and sets up his earthly kingdom. And at that time, there will be a new covenant established. But you cannot have that when you have Jesus Christ on the the night before he's betrayed and, and, and the day before he's crucified saying, listen, this blood that is about to be shed is going to establish and inaugurate a new covenant between God and his people. One thing we have to understand is that today... The church is made up of both believing Jews and believing Gentiles. The, the scriptures make that clear. I mean, uh, Paul talks about it in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, where he talks about that we are today the spiritual seed of Abraham. Galatians 3 13 through 29. He talks about saying, We are the we are now in Abraham. Abraham, the father of Israel, the Abraham, the one whom they look to as their as their progenitor, as their founder, as their as the father of their of their religion and their faith. He says, Now we who are in Christ, we who have entered into into this relationship, we individually, who have come into this covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ in the new covenant are now literally the spiritual seed of Abraham. Perhaps to understand this most clearly, you have to go back to the principle that, that Paul gave to the Romans. When writing to the Romans and Paul talking about the gospel going forth, as a matter of fact, when he said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. For whom? To the who first to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. When Christ came into the world, he came with a gospel message to the Jews first. It was in and around Jerusalem completely. As a matter of fact, Matthew 15 says he went to his own people first. When he sent out disciples, he sent them out only to Israel in Matthew chapter 10, only to the house of Israel. And in the end in Matthew 24, excuse me, Luke 24 and Acts 1:8 When Jesus commissioned his church to be a witness, to be a missionary endeavor, a missionary body, when he sent them out, he said, go to the Jew first, into Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. I mean, Jesus always had before him with the new covenant that it would go to the Jew first. But what happened? Well, the Jews as a nation, the Jews as a people, rejected the new covenant. Many of them said, you know, many within the the Jewish nation believed. As a matter of fact, if you go back to Pentecost, the people that believed on that day, those 3,000 people that were baptized and added to the church that day were made up of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. And God-fearing Gentiles were Gentiles who had converted to, to, to Judaism who had gone through, the, sacra- uh, gone through the, uh, the rituals of circumcision and other things in order to enter into the relationship with the temple and enter into the relationship with Judaism. And on that day, Peter preached a powerful message. The Holy Spirit fell, and those who were of the nation of Israel believed that day, and 3,000 of them, perhaps even some of the ones that he's writing to in this letter, were brought into the body of Christ through faith, in the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. So today the church is made up of of both regenerate Jews and regenerate Gentiles. And regenerate is the key word. Those who are in this new covenant are those who have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not just those who have walked an aisle or signed a card or even prayed a prayer, but those in whose lives the Holy Spirit has worked an act of regeneration. What Jesus said to Nicodemus when he said, what must I do to have eternal life? And he said, you must be born again. There must be new life to enter into your life and you must be brought forth from the death of sin and into the life that is in the Spirit and in Christ. So all that are in Christ according uh, to Jesus and according to Paul uh, are now making up this new covenant community. Paul in the, his letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, he talked about how the dividing wall had been torn down. He talked about how in the past you had the Jews here and the Gentiles here, and there was a wall that was between them, and there was a literal wall in the temple. There was a literal wall that kept Gentiles and Jews from any way intermingling. Gentiles could come into the outer court, and they could could offer certain sacrifices there, Uh, and they could do some kind of worship there, if you will, but there was a dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, the apostle Paul says that in Christ, that dividing wall has been abolished. The dividing wall has been torn down. And now it's no longer Jew and Gentile. Now it's no longer Jews who can say we are God's people and Gentiles who are the excluded ones. But now they are all one in Christ. And in Jesus Christ, the wall is abolished. And we are no longer Jew and Gentile. We're no longer black and white. We're no longer free or slave. We're no longer male or female. But in Christ, Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, we are all in him standing on equal footing before the cross of Christ and before the throne of God. It's a tremendous truth that somehow we as Christians today fail to grasp the import of. We fail to see the importance of what, what what the writer here is saying has taken place with this new mediator, this new high priest, this new ministry that has been given through Jesus Christ for each of us. You know, one thing that you have to understand here is that It's made clear throughout the Scripture, throughout the New Testament, that this new covenant has brought, uh, this new covenant of grace has brought with it freedom from the law of Moses. It does not mean in any respect that it brings freedom to disobey God and to sin. It's brought freedom from the law of Moses, whereby we go through all the rituals. But it does not break the moral law of God. It does not set us free from from what God desires in each of our lives, my life and your life and everyone who claims the name of Christ and that is for righteousness and for holiness to be a part of our lives. Being being set free from the law does not mean, mean being set free from the character and the nature of God that is to permeate the life of every single believer. That's important to understand. Because if we don't, we'll become so caught up in our freedom that we will forget what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So in all of that, the writer is saying this new covenant has been established. It is established in Jesus Christ. Now, he talks about what we might call the better promises of this covenant. He, he talks about how if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for, for the second covenant. But in verses 8 and 9, he, ta- he begins to unfold what the promises are of this new covenant. Do you remember the old covenant when they came out of Egypt? God said he led them by the hand out of Egypt. Moses was their leader. They got the law. They got the covenant there at Mount Sinai. And, and, and before the law was even brought back down to them, before they ever even heard what God was giving to Moses on the mountain, what would they do? They broke it. When Moses got back down, he found they had made a, a graven image, they had made a, a golden calf and bejeweled it, and, and they were all dancing and making merry around it and, and worshiping the golden calf. Now, I think to their, i start to say their credit, it's not really their credit, but, but to give them a little bit of a doubt here, they, they were putting that golden calf and saying, this is our God, this is Yahweh. They were not saying, let's go to a false god. They were saying, let's just make something that we can look at. Let's make something that we can see. Let's make something that is a part of our tangible lives that we can touch, that we can feel. They just wanted to be able to see their God. And they said, well, get this golden calf, we'll, we'll consider that it's Yahweh and we'll worship it so we'll have something before our mind. That's dangerous because that's making a graven image of something on earth to try to represent what is in heaven, that is the living God, and it cannot be done. And it's forbidden by the law that Moses brought back down. In his anger, he broke the tablets, had to go back up and, and get some more from God and carve them themselves. But in reality, that was, a, that was an important point in the life of the nation of Israel. But if you go back and read that covenant carefully, and we don't have time to do it this morning, but I, advise, I encourage you to do it. If you go back and read that covenant carefully, You find in that covenant in the Old Testament that the the, the scripture goes over and over and says, and if you will. And and God says, I will do this if you will do this. I mean, there is a a, a, a conditional obedience on that that is breakable. In this passage, both from Jeremiah and in the book of Hebrews, I love that the emphasis is on God's grace. It's not on if you will, it's on what God, I will do, God says. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, For finding fault with him, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. God is saying here there's a a different element. There's a different involvement in this new covenant. And that is, it is a covenant promise of God's grace. He said, I will make a new covenant with them. I will effect a new covenant with them. It will be because of my work and what I am doing that I will draw them together. And, and, And all the words the Lord spoke in this new covenant is saying that it's holy of God's grace. No sinner can become a part of the new covenant without faith in Jesus Christ. Grace and faith go together just as the law and works uh, went together in the old covenant. This law says the man that does the things of the law shall live in them, but by grace God gives us the ability to obey it. This covenant is a covenant of God's grace. The second promise there is not only a promise of God's grace, but it's a promise of internal change. Of internal change. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, it could be easily just uh, you could just easily read over that and just say, oh, that's, that's interesting. But you've got to see the internal change that God is talking about here, the internal motivation, the internal possibility or, or ability to obey this law, to obey God's law, God's truth, God's righteousness, God's holiness. He says, I will write my laws on their minds, and I will write my laws on their hearts. Where was the law under the Old Covenant? The law under the Old Covenant was on some tablets of stone. They were external to the person and to the people. They could look at those stones... And they could say, wow, there's the law of God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall, you shall make unto yourself no graven image in the image of God. You, you, shall not, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You, you shall not steal. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not I mean, all those laws were there on a plaque, on a stone tablet that they could read and they could see. And there obviously there were copies of it made. It weren't just the one. But they had that law but that law was external. And they, they tried all they could to keep that law. They tried to do all the rituals that the, that the rabbis and others set up around the law and the priests and the Pharisees and all the others through the years as they added to those 10 laws about 600 more laws that they tried to obey. They tried to cover. But there was no internal power to do that. There was no internal change of heart and change of thinking and change of living that came about with that old covenant. They were left to their own strength, their own attempts to do the very best they can. But God says, in this new covenant, the covenant which the old covenant was pointing toward, the covenant which was also looking forward to a Messiah although they fail to see that so many times, most of the time, I would say. In this new covenant, there is the promise of an internal change because God says... I will take sinful people who need a new heart. I will take sinful people who need a new disposition of life. I will take sinful people whose thinking is all corrupted by their sin and by their depravity, and I will change them from within. I will give them a new heart. I will give them a new mind. I will give them, Paul said in one place in Philippians, the very mind of Christ, and I will write my laws upon their mind, and I will write my laws upon their heart, and it won't be an external tablet. It will be an internal Working of the power of God through a changed life and the Holy Spirit working within the believer's life. You see, that's the beauty in the new covenant. In the new covenant, there is a, a changed life, and that's a promise of that new covenant. It's not just a hope, it's not just a maybe. It's a promise that all those who come to Christ in faith by the grace of God will have a change of heart and a change of life, and that will be effected by God in this new covenant. And then there's a third promise. And and that is the promise of forgiveness of all sin. A a promise of forgiveness of all sin in, in verses 11 and 12, but that is predicated by the the promise of getting uh, of being able to know God. They go together. In the old covenant, people would go from, from fellow citizen and, and to his brother in the, in the covenant and say, you need to know the Lord. And, and many of them would say, I don't need to know the Lord, I just need to try to keep those 10 things, you know? And, and there was a concept in there, no, you need to seek the face of God, you need to seek the presence of God. And they said, oh no, no, I just need to keep the law, that's all I need to do, which none of them could do. But in this new covenant, there's the promise of intimacy. There is the promise of relationship that brings with it the forgiveness of sin. You know, you will not say to your brother, you will not say to your fellow citizen, know the Lord. Why? Because all that are in this covenant will know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, from the least important to the most important, from the poorest to the richest, from the, from the best looking to the ugliest. I mean, I mean, just put anything in there you want to. There is no differentiation in this new covenant. You don't get in the covenant unless there is the requisite promise of an intimacy and a knowledge with God. What did Jesus say? When he was talking to his father in the prayer, and he started praying for his disciples there in the garden, in John chapter 17. And, he, and then he started praying for not only those that are around me right now, but for all those who will believe because of their testimony. What does he say? He said, Father, I pray you give them eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you. Period. You know, we we wrap eternal life up in a lot of other stuff. And there are some other benefits to eternal life. There's the benefit of heaven. But sometimes we make heaven the main thing. The only reason heaven could be the main thing is because he is the main thing in heaven and we're pursuing him. But in this new covenant, all will know him. There'll be an intimacy about their life. There'll There'll be a unity in their life between them and God. There'll be a... There will be a walk with the Lord Jesus Christ that can only be explained by his presence within our life. And it'll be a growing knowledge. It'll be an increasing knowledge. It'll be a maturing knowledge. It'll be one of those things, you know, as Paul prayed in Philippians, he said, Lord, I I pray that I may know you that was his passion. That was his desire above everything else, that I may know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings, even being conformed to your death. Paul was simply saying there 20 years after his conversion, Lord, my passion in life, my goal in life, my ambition in life above everything else is to know you better. Now I think we have to stop and ask, what is your ambition? What is my ambition in life? I mean, the primary, the preeminent, the number one ambition. What do you want more than anything else? Is it to have a happy family? Is it to uh, to make a lot of money? Is it to be well respected by people around you? Is it to be able to to do something that nobody else has done, and you're you're driven to do that? I don't know what you're greatest ambition is. All of those are not bad ambitions unless they are the preeminent ambition in your life. If they are the number one ambition in your life above everything else and your spiritual ambitions to know Christ, to know God through Christ, are somewhere down the list, then there's everything wrong with those. Everything in the world wrong with those. Because in this new covenant, we will know Him intimately, growing relationship daily, walking with Him. And in that, He says, I will be merciful to their iniquities, that is their sins. And I will remember their sins no more. i remember their sins no more there is the promise of intimacy, and there's the promise of forgiveness of all our sins if we are in Him. We could go to all sorts of scriptures. You know, my, my favorite, obviously, for that is, as I've quoted it numerous times, and in two weeks from today, I'll, or two weeks from this weekend, I'll be doing a, a men's conference down in Montgomery, Alabama, on, that con- on the concept of, of Romans 8 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no condemnation because the sins have been forgiven. The sins have been covered. Now, that's not a a license to just not be concerned about holiness, not be concerned about walking with Christ. Not at all, because to not have that concern indicates that you really aren't where you ought to be and don't have what you claim to have. But your sins will be forgiven. I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's an amazing promise. Literally it means I'll remember their sins against them no more. There's a sense in which we can't God would have a problem not remembering because God knows everything. He is omnipotent and omniscient and, and so it's if you don't understand this in the way I think the text intends it, then, then you may struggle with that because he's literally saying, I remember them against them no more. As a pastor, for the last 40 years almost, I have uh, spent more than my share of times counseling with couples, or couples and different individuals who have had some kind of a, a struggle, some kind of a, a break in the relationship, some kind of a break in the fellowship. And, and many times we'll sit down. I even talked with a pastor this week who was on his way to meet with two church, three church members who had had a, a falling out and, and, and one refused to forgive the others. And there was all sorts of things going on. But many times in these counseling situations, I'll, I'll hear someone say, maybe it's a spouse about a spouse or, or maybe it's a friend about another friend or a church member about another church member. And they'll make this comment. They'll say, you know what? I'll forgive them, but I won't forget it. You ever heard that? Well, of course you won't forget it. I mean, that's the most obvious statement in all the world. And the more you try to forget something, I'm going to forget that. You just remembered it. And the more you try to forget something, the more you're going to remember it, and the less you're going to be able to really deal with what real forgiveness is. Some people think, well, if you don't forget it, you really haven't forgiven. If you don't forgive and forget, you you really haven't forgiven. That's ludicrous. If that were the case, then we'd have a real problem with our relationship with God. I'll just be honest with you. But what I tell people in those counseling situations is simply this. I'm not talking about forgetting it. I'm talking about never remembering it against them again. You know, Paul said in in 1 Corinthians 13... And he's describing love there. And one of those essence of love is love does not keep an account of a wrong suffered. Remember that? I could read it to you and read the whole thing if you want me to, but I think you remember that. Love, real love, genuine love does not keep an account of a wrong suffered. Now, that word keep an account is a, is a accounting term. It's a ledger term. And what he's saying is love doesn't say, okay, I tell you what, I'm gonna forgive you, but I'm gonna write that down right here and that's number one, and I'm going to file it away somewhere, and there's going to come a time when I may need that, and I will remember it and call it up, and I'll say, oh, this happens in marriages a lot, oh, do you remember when you did this? You know, they may say, well, I I may have done this now, but boy, do you remember when you did this and such? You remember that? I'm so glad that doesn't come along, and when I go before God and ask for things and say something, God doesn't say, well, yeah, I know, and I've forgiven you, but do you remember back in 1971 when you did this and that and the other or 1969? He didn't didn't remember those against us. They're covered in the blood of Christ. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, I will forgive their sins, I will, I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's a great promise to this new covenant. You say, yeah, but what if I sin tomorrow? Well, if you sin tomorrow, you need to deal with it. You know, if you sin tomorrow and news flash here, you will. You say, Bill, you mean literally tomorrow? Yeah, literally tomorrow. Or probably more literally in about 10 minutes. Or maybe a minute. I don't know what you're thinking sitting there. But you deal with it. You don't ask God to forgive it. He's already forgiven it according to the New Covenant and according to to, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He's already covered that sin. There's already no condemnation for that sin, but there is a relational matter in knowing him where that sin needs to be dealt with. You need to agree with God about it. You need to say, yes, Lord, that is sin in my life. I agree with you. Thank you for cleansing it and continue walking in him. You don't let them build up. don't let them become a barrier in that relationship. So that's what happens in in human relationships, isn't it? Especially in marriages. Uh, You you know, you you have these little things that happen. You say, well, I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. That's very noble of you. So I just won't even talk about it. And then another little thing comes along, and it kind of gets laid upon it like a brick. You know, it's like these books. There's the first one. Another little one comes along. You lay another one down, and it's on top of it. You say, well, I'm... I'm bigger than that. I'm not going to deal with it. And then finally, before you know it, there's a wall that's been built up. I tell couples that in premarital counseling. I say, you know, these little things that you just won't deal with and get out of the way will ultimately build a wall. And when you get there, I remember one couple coming to me in Stone Mountain, Georgia, after about a year of marriage, and, and they came after church, after church. They said, Pastor, can we talk with you this next week? And I said, sure. I said, what's the deal? He said, well, we got that wall you talked about. So we got together, we met, we talked, we prayed, and we counseled some, and and the wall came down. Here, 30 years later, they're still married, or 25 years later, they're still married. But but the point that I'm making is this. You don't let those things build up. You don't treat sin as just a little peccadillo that's no big deal. It is still a big deal, albeit a forgiven big deal, but a big deal that you need to deal with in your own life, and you say, Lord... I don't like that. That's what Paul did in Romans chapter 7. He said, I find myself doing the things I know I shouldn't do and not doing the things I know I should do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this, this life of sin? And his answer is, the Lord Jesus Christ will. And his next statement is, there's no condemnation there now for, for those who are in Christ. There's conviction, and, and there's, there, there's, uh, there's relational issues on a daily basis, there's no condemnation. That's what this new covenant is. This new covenant is something like it had never been seen in all the world, in all of time, in all of religion, or the Judaism, or pagan, or anything else. This new covenant is something that is so new, it's not just new in a matter of time, but the word he uses there in the Greek, uh, in writing this down from the, from the Hebrew out of, out of uh, Jeremiah, the word he used there is not that it's just a new covenant in a matter of time, you know, 2,000 years ago, there was a covenant with Moses, and now in this time, there's a new covenant with the people of God. It's not like saying, you know, I have a, I have a 2002 Mitsubishi Eclipse, and, and I think I'm going to go to town, and I'm going to buy me a 2011 Mitsubishi Eclipse. Same car, same quality, same type, but it's newer in relation to time, no. It's like me saying, you know, I've, I've got a 2002 Mitsubishi Eclipse, and I'm going to go somewhere, and I'm going to buy me a 2011 Cadillac, or a 2011 Mercedes, or a 2011 Porsche. That's what I really want. But I'm going to, I'm going to go do that. And it's, it's. If you're looking for a birthday gift, I just thought I'd drop that in. But it's a. Uh, it's not just new in time. It's not just 2002 to 2011 it's it's new in quality it's better it's new In time, but it's new in quality. If the old covenant, he said, if he says a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete because he said back in verse 7, if the first covenant had been faultless, if the first covenant had been sufficient, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. But because there was one sought for a second, occasion sought for the second, it's better. They're both of God. The old covenant was God's covenant. Don't miss that. It wasn't a false covenant and a true covenant. It wasn't, but it was a, an old covenant, an ineffectual covenant, and a new, better covenant. And Folks, if you're in Christ, that's what you have. If you are in Christ, you have a covenant with God. You have a covenant with God whereby you can know Him. Not just about Him. You know, I, I know a lot about uh, politicians. I know a lot about Barack Obama because I see him on the news every day. I can tell you a lot about him. But I don't know him. But I, I know Retta. I don't, I, it's not just I know a lot about her, but I've spent, I spent 38 years in a covenant relationship with her. And I know her. Probably not as well as I should but I know her. She knows me because there's been an intimacy. That's what the writer here is talking about. He's talking about, you don't have to just know about God. Not just about reading about God or about Jesus Christ in a book. See, Jesus is not just a book character. Jesus is a living Lord. He's a living Lord. He's present. Right here, right now. And so the writer says here is what God is doing. He's establishing a new covenant whereby you can know God through Christ. He's establishing a new covenant whereby his law will be taken off the stone tablets, written in your mind and written on your heart. There'll be a motivation to be obedient if you're in Christ. He won't be perfect, but there'll be a motivation. I want to obey him. I want to know him. I want to obey what he says. And there'll be forgiveness. Ultimate, complete, total forgiveness for our iniquities, for our sins, for our disobedience, for our slips, for our falls, for our whatever. This new covenant is better. This new covenant is richer than any covenant the world has ever known. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. Or your covenant. We are grateful that you do it. I will establish. I will make a covenant in the cross of Christ. We've sang about the power of the cross today. The choir has sung about the wonder of the cross. We've talked about your grace that is greater than our sin. We've talked about Worship in heaven in the Revelation song. And we talked about the solid rock of Jesus Christ. We've sung about all that. And about your holiness. Father, give us a greater understanding and a greater appreciation of and a greater walk in this covenant that you have established. For we commit this to you In Christ alone. Father, I pray for men and women here that are not in that covenant. They might be in a church. They might be have made a profession of some sort, but it was a spurious profession. It was not a a genuine confession and profession of faith in Christ alone. They're depending on their own ability. Father, I pray that you break the bonds of that legalism and show them the freedom and the joy and the peace and the comfort and the grace that is in this new covenant. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.